The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 6th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now a word from, well, not our sponsor. Brushing Kitty's coat can be a disaster. Her fur goes everywhere. Clothes and furniture covered in hair. Now your pretty kitty can groom her own coat with Perfect Arch. It's Perfect Arch. Basically a semicircular scratching post. It's revolutionary. You know, it's a wonder product for the 21st century, and you know it delivers because the infomercial is chock-a-block with puns. Kitty will be perfectly happy. She'll be perfectly entertained for hours on end. For perfectly happy cats, perfectly content, perfectly entertained. And also because the announcer is perfectly positive. But wait, what's this? As a bonus, we'll also include a bag of catnip absolutely free for hours of feline fun. And then they go on to say that it has a catnip base. The catnip-infused base keeps Kitty coming back for more. This is not fair. Of course cats like it. Cats like anything that has catnip. It's like catnip to them. It's like saying, we have a series of novels that even the most recalcitrant of non-reading teens will want to read. It's the leather-bound classics Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, The End of the Affair, handsomely stored on a bookshelf made of liquor, cigarettes, and pizza. And by the way, why is the cat always a she? Perfect Arch lets your cat get an amazing massage while brushing her own fur. That's perfectly perplexing. But I can't puzzle over cat commercials all day. I have important things to do. For instance, I will discuss the Gambian coup in the spiel. And we'll also discuss the possibility of a national conversation about race with Harvard sociology professor Orlando Patterson. But first, I discuss civility. Mandated civility. The Civility Wars is a new article in The New Yorker. It's written by Hua Su, who's a teacher at Vassar College and a Ford Academic Fellow at the New America Foundation. Hello, Hua. Hey, Mike. So is the problem with trying to achieve civility, is the problem that it's kind of subjective so you don't know when you get there, is the problem that it actually is impossible to achieve, or is it more like once you achieve something akin to civility, it's a little bit of a letdown. It's not, you know, civility is not utopia. It's just civility. We achieve civility in our everyday lives all the time. You know, informal communities, conversation. You know, we treat each other fairly well. Yes. But I think my problem, the thing that I was trying to get at with the piece was with sort of top-down mandates for civility, uh, you know, sort of workplace codes. And as, insofar as the university is a microcosm of anything, there there just seem to be a lot of controversies nowadays with sort of enforcing a code of civility on your students, on your faculty. And I think that's always a a tough thing to try and achieve, especially in the digital age. It's almost uncivil to try to enforce a code (laughs) of civility, right? You should always be suspicious of um, sort of any institutional mandate that we be nicer to each other, perhaps. Tell me about Stephen Salada. Yeah, it's a fascinating case, and uh, it's still in progress. He's recently sued the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. What essentially happened was he was vetted by his department, by the institution, and he was all set to begin a tenured position this past fall. But shortly before arriving on campus, he was unhired by the, I believe, the chancellor of the school. Sort of pre-fired. Yeah. Um, And procedurally, it's just sort of an odd case because what had happened was he had sent out some quite inflammatory tweets um, 
about sort of Israel and Palestine, uh, you know, they, they really luxuriated in the shock value of social media. And those tweets had gone viral, and a lot of the trustees and a lot of upper administrators felt very uncomfortable that they were bringing this guy who, um, whose name was, you know, circulating on conservative blogs and whatnot. And so if this was the grounds of firing, they, they termed it sort of a violation of civility. They called him uncivil. Do you think they had to use that as a, you know, like how they went after Capone for taxes because they couldn't get him on murder? <laughs> like they were really upset with the content of his tweets, but on a college you can't ever address content? Yeah, definitely. And and they've been very steadfast at the university that it's not about academic freedom, um, that it is about sort of tone, civility, the idea that a student would feel very uncomfortable knowing that uh, their professor had used such inflammatory language. Particularly nowadays, you know, we live in a really discursive time. We're always online. We're always producing and consuming texts. It's inevitable that students, administrators, faculty, that we're going to feel uncomfortable with each other just by the nature of how much of each other we read. This might be a little bit antiquated of an idea, but there is uh, in our culture, we praise the rebel you know, there are phrases like well-behaved women seldom make history. I don't know if they say it. Some version of that is probably said for men. Uh, that seems to butt against having civility as an ideal. It's a lot, I mean, we, re we really do prize academic freedom in, in the academy, and we prize uh, people who speak their mind, uh, particularly if it's, you know, really coarse, coarsely expressed. I mean, I think for all the people who thought that Joe Wilson was being deeply uncivil when he sort of chanted down President Obama during the State of the Union, there are plenty of people who thought, you know, the, the injustice of the moment required him to do such a thing. So it really, civility is such a subjective idea in yeah. moments like that. Does this go in historical cycles, being against civility, being embracing civility? Or is it mostly every generation thinks the next one is less and less civil? I think every generation does think that they inhabit the worst time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's just sort of historically true. We always feel like we are sort of at the, at the precipice of something apocalyptic. I think as far as civility is concerned, it does seem a bit cyclical. I mean, it seems as though civility is just one of these ways in which we're trying to figure out how to deal with sort of speech, passion, um, debate, all of these contests that social media and the Internet has really um, sort of decentralized for us. Hua Su teaches at Vassar College. He's a Ford Academic Fellow. For The New Yorker, he's written The Civility Wars. And Hua, let me say, you are an insufferable fuckwad. Get the hell out. <laughs> Wait. I You're probably, an inspiration for us all. I probably should have been nicer. Thanks very much. Thank you. This is something that a fellow sociologist said of Orlando Patterson, quote, in an era when social scientists specialize in ever smaller objects, he, Orlando Patterson, is a Renaissance scholar who takes the time to tackle huge questions across multiple continents in multiple centuries. There was another scholar like this in the early 20th century named Max Weber. Orlando is in that category, which is to say the category of greatest sociologist ever. Orlando Patterson is a professor of sociology at Harvard, and his new book is The Cultural Matrix, Understanding Black Youth. He edited it, and he wrote a large portion of it. Hello, Professor Patterson. Hi. I didn't say it, as and I didn't prompt him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's even more of a compliment. It was unbidden. <laughs> so 
there is a prescription, a Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly type prescription for the ills of the black community, which are real, which are, you know, the majority of, of black people not born to families with fathers. That yeah. is put you behind the eight ball. But the prescription is to change the culture. And I'm wondering if you can actually cite examples of history of cultures changing without a change in material circumstances, without a change in economic circumstances, either for for ill or bad. The big mistake which especially liberals make about um, culture is that they assume it's something which is unchangeable, the old cake of custom view. That's, That's actually nonsense. In fact, it's often easier to change culture than it is to change the structural factors which um, people emphasize. And I can give you lots of examples from America. Mm-hmm. Let's take this thing called Jim Crow, built up over several centuries, a hardened set of values, racism at the core of it. Huh? Look, within a decade and a half, that whole cultural system came crashing down. Let's take another example which has been building up for thousands of years, um, anti-gay attitudes. Huh? Yeah. Um, uh, the idea that um, people of the same gender can marry. Look, my friend, within a decade, think about that. Yeah. If you want, if whenever someone says to you, <laughs> cultures can't change, uh, just think about those two. I can give you a lot of other examples. Okay, so um, can the inner-city black okay. community make some changes, decide okay. to do things differently, and therefore, yeah. like Bill O'Reilly is telling everyone, no. raise okay. themselves Here's up the by the bootstraps. With Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. And I emphasize that culture is always interactive with structural forces, economic ones, and so on. Now, let's take, for example, I mean, bringing up children. We know that there is a real problem in that many black youth um, spend a lot of time on their own. And that's often when they get into trouble. Between the end of school and 8 o'clock, their parents come home, their mothers come home, or what have you. Now, that's when they get into trouble. They're on their own. Kids need attention. But if you have an economic system in which, even after working two jobs full-time, the Walmartization of work in which people are deliberately given part-time jobs so that they can't schedule their lives. So they end up, in fact, I mean, running from one job to another. I mean, what happens to the kids? The kids are on their own. And what happens when especially boys are on their own? I mean, they end up in gangs because they need company. They need direction. And so they go to the gang leader for direction. So, of course, I agree. Yeah. In 2009, November 2009, you wrote this. What can we expect of Mr. Obama? One thing we can be sure of is that he will not be leading any national conversations on race, convinced as he must be that they exacerbate rather than illuminate. And then you went on to note that the reaction to the arrest of Henry Louis Gates Jr., your colleague there at Harvard, was a near political disaster and must have reinforced his reluctance. Well, it's five years later. You are exactly right, and now he's trying to engage in this discussion about Ferguson and civil rights and police and policing. And, you know, I mean, there's too much rhetoric. The, the, the demand for rhetoric is sometimes too great. I'm still reluctant. I mean, I am not in favor of a national conversation on race. Over 300 million people can't have a national conversation. America is not a single culture, a single society. I mean, you know, it's divided regionally in all sorts of ways. It's divided by class, it's divided by ethnicity, and 
um, it's going to be very hard. And there's another reason why a conversation on race is not going to be productive. And it has to do with this. It's got to do with the demographics. You see, most white Americans have really made real progress in terms of their attitudes and so on. I mean, I'd say that of all the majority of white societies of the world, uh, America has the largest proportion of whites who are genuinely, you know, accept the idea of racial equality, mm-hmm. their attitudes and so on. But there's a hard core of about 20%, which still remains highly racist. Now, you know what that means, however? It's, it's just a function of numbers here. Blacks are only about 13% of the population. Whites are over 74%. If 20% of whites, um, you know, hold racist views, it means that, you know, for every one black person, there are going to be at least three thorough racists walking around. What's more, blacks are more likely to encounter those people, um, the, you know, because they may be disproportionately among the police, among the working class um, people, um, they meet and interact with in work and so on. So you get a situation in America now where the typical black person, especially working class black person, in his normal encounter is likely to experience a lot of racism still. Whereas a typical white person is likely to say, look, we've made incredible progress, and I, I hardly know any real racist person. And both of the correct. That's what, in a way, this particular situation we now face. Specific set of issues having to do with black youth and the police. Now, that's a clear set of issues. Um, it, it's, it's, it has to do with incompetent training of police, and it has to do with the nature of, um, you know, the interaction between the police and, in fact, a small proportion of black youth who, in fact, create a lot of the trouble. Uh, not, all, not for white people, but in fact, 90% of the people they're creating trouble for, I'm talking about the disconnected youth in the street culture, the underground economy, um, and so on. It's, their victims are other black people. And by the way, the people who are calling for the police to do more constructively are black people who yeah. are living in the camp, the large yes. majority of whom are law-abiding people. Sure, they so want to be, they want effective have policing. a situation where we need to t- retrain these damn police people. You don't go choke-holding people. You know, you know it's, it's simple. I mean, you know, and um, they need to know that they'll get fired if they do certain things. And this can be done. This can be trained. Let's focus on that and not get off it. We've got to get a police force whom we want in the ghettos more who will be focused not on, you know, stopping every second black youth they see, but helping. Yeah, uh, that's such a great point. Uh, the police force that the ghetto wants is not a police force that doesn't police, is not a police yeah. force that doesn't right. do arrests. They don't but want that. that does. Yes, yeah, that, that does, and that, that, that does, does it. police properly, exactly. yeah. I want to ask one last thing, and it's something Chris Rock said in an interview with Frank Rich. He said race relations, he likened it to Ike and Tina Turner relations. We would not say, how's, how's <laughs> Tina treating Ike? He said there's no race relations, that white people were crazy, and now maybe they're a little less crazy. How do you look at the issue of race relations? Do you think that's a useful frame? Uh, the majority of white people are, in fact, quite um, 
um, accepting of um, black Americans and uh, as equals, uh, just in ethnic terms, but they have huge class differences between them. I mean, the majority of black people are working class people. And, um, you know, the, um, and the, we have separate worlds here. So this brings us back to the fact, you know, I mean, how, how can we get more black Americans to move up into the middle class? And the sad story there is that um, the opposite of what we'd like is happening. There is a great deal of downward mobility from um, from the black middle class, the opposite of what we want. And, and that's one, something we should really worry about and have a conversation about. Orlando Patterson is sociologist at Harvard University, and he's the editor of the new collection, The Cultural Matrix, Understanding Black Youth. Thank you, Professor Patterson. Thank you. And now the spiel, the Gambian goof. So yesterday we debuted our first ever song in a year-long They Might Be Giants collaboration. That will be the last thing in every Monday show for 2015, a new They Might Be Giants dial-a-song contribution. But I want to play an old They Might Be Giants song. In fact, I would say it is the favorite song of my oldest son and mine. My youngest son's favorite song is the one where they say, We Want Cake because that aligns with his interests. But here's my oldest son and mine's favorite song. One lyric. Here's the lyric I'm thinking of. Algeria, Bulgaria, Cambodia, Dominica, Egypt, France, the Gambia. The Gambia. The song is the alphabet of nations, and the country is the Gambia. Other than the Bahamas, the only country that's modified with a the. Don't know why. I think because of the grandiosity of its leader. But I was thinking of the Gambia today because it's in the news. It was the site of a would-be coup. Woulda, coulda, woulda, coulda, shoulda happened about a week ago. Well, it didn't happen. A number of the coosters were killed, but not the masterminds. And that is a term I use very loosely. I have read the criminal complaint, United States of America versus Cherno Njai and Papa Fall, or as he should be known, Papa Epic Fall. Fall from a staging area just off the coast of the West African nation. Well, a little ways off the coast. Okay, he planned the coup from Minnesota. And his co-conspirator, Njai, they're Gambian nationals and apparently pretty big fans of Woody Allen's bananas. FBI agents found an envelope marked top secret in Fall's home. It was seriously written in black magic marker, top secret. It was underlined. And the contents of this envelope were some Google Maps of the Gambia. The bicycle lanes option was not chosen. Fall spearheaded the coup by recruiting mercenaries and shipping over arms. He bought eight rifles, in fact, had about 10 men. Njai, a Gambian now living in Austin, Texas, was the money man. The plan seems to have been that after the president was deposed, you know, because they had eight rifles and all, that Njai would become president in the name of countering the unelected dictator who currently presides over the Gambia. Fall was known to Njai only by the code name The Fox. Njai was known to Fall by the code name Dave. Dave. This is the greatest mismatch of code names in coup history. Like the Falcon and the Snowman? No, the Falcon, the Snowman, and Bob. 
Maverick, this is Iceman. Iceman, this is Jester. Jester, this is Goose. Goose, this is Stuart Eisenstadt. Now, you can see why the coup plotters, or coup notters, as the case happened to be, loathed the Gambianese leader, Yahya Jamai. Sorry, Sheikh Professor Ali Haj Dr. Yahya Abdul Aziz Jemes Jungkung Jamai. One of the world's worst dictators, Jamai has criminalized homosexuality, arrested over a thousand people on charges of witchcraft, and he wants to create an Islamic republic that is stricter than Iran's. Those are his own words. Also in his own words, Jamai, like Honey Badger, don't care. I will not bow down before any human being except the Almighty Allah. And if they don't like that, they can go to hell. I don't care what they say. Jamai went on to rebut claims of human rights abuses by arguing that yes, even though he has sentenced many, many opponents to death, he actually hasn't killed them. Why? Well, I don't want to step on the zinger at the end of this next quote, but it's a familiar place where you could go. So if I don't execute people that have been condemned to death by law, you think I want to earn one-way ticket to hell by killing people that have not, done, that have not been tried by any court of law? I'm a Muslim. Allah, in Allah, I put my faith. In Allah, I trust. And only Allah, I fear. The rest, they can go to hell. Infuriating, at least it was, to Papa Fall, who left Gambia 23 years ago and became a member of the U.S. Air Force. But now Papa's got a brand new bag. He's a coup plotter. He'd take his men and his guns, both plural, he'd like you to know, guns, his top secret documents, possibly some restricted access Quiznos coupons, and a neck pillow marked confidential to use on the flight over. From a safe area even closer than Minnesota, he would go on to direct two teams of men, Alpha and, well, what the hell, Bravo team, to overtake the presidential motorcade. The criminal complaint against Fall says the team conducted, quote, mental dry runs of their plan, Oh, shit, the president's out of town when Fall gets there. Okay, redo, coup over. No, Fall goes ahead. Once you got a team named Alpha, you got to use that team. Heck, deploy that team. So he sends him into the presidential villa, which, as we've documented, he's currently San's president. He figures once the guards confront Alpha team, they'll throw down their weapons or, better yet, join Alpha team. Different thing happens. Guards kill all of Alpha team. Okay, regroup. I know. Send in Bravo team. After all, it is sort of an encore. Well, a guy from Bravo team is killed and the rest flee. So the coup fails and Njai and Fall are arrested. And here we are today. And there in Gambia is Yaya Jama. But that's what's galling. Fall and Njai were charged with violation of the Neutrality Act. To the United States, the Gambia is, quote, a friendly nation. But it really is a brutal dictatorship. It's repressive. And in the charging documents, there are references, however ludicrous, to Njai asking Fall about his plans to transition to civilian rule once the coup goes ahead. When you think about it, these bumbling Gambian expats get every practical detail wrong and yet still maintain a higher moral ground than the dictator who is lucky enough to be out of the country and also lucky enough to be backed by a country that does nothing to loosen his grip on power. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is a model of civility and enlightened discourse. Just intern Claire Tennisketter evinces a courtesy in behavior and speech commensurate with her fine upbringing. Joel Meyer, on the other hand, marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. And by pointing this out, all of a sudden, I'm the asshole. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is the guy in the beginning who gives the language warning 
Thank you, Andy. You deliver it with a forbearance born of equanimity and today, necessity. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to The Gist. You could sign up for our daily email. To do that, go to slate.com slash gist email. We utilize the app Yo. Download Yo. Sign up for podcast. We'll let you know when the show is ready as soon as it is ready. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. I credit you for finding us, The Gist, as we are an island of tact propriety and decorum in a sea of discourteousness, unmannerliness, and real housewives. Thank you for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we talk with ESPN's Jay Harris about the life and career of his colleague, Stuart Scott, who passed away of cancer at age 49. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at itunes.com slash slate podcasts.